The first law of worship is this, and do not miss it. True worship is not external, but must rise from the heart. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom continues his current series with part four of The Heart of Worship. Last time we began to look at the shocking exchange between a Samaritan woman and the Lord of all, Jesus Christ. You were reminded that true worship is not external, but comes from the heart, and that what matters to God is what's going on in your heart. Well, today Tom will continue to look at this incredible encounter, examining the significance of Jesus going to Samaria to reveal himself as the only one worthy of worship, to the last person anyone would ever expect. Let's join Tom right now with today's message on The Word Unleashed. Now, most of the time, women drew water in the cool parts of the day, usually at sunset, around sunset. And understand that in that culture, drawing water was really a social activity. Think of Jacob's well as kind of an ancient version of Starbucks. Now, it may be that this woman had good reasons, good practical reasons for coming at noon and for coming alone, but more likely... She was purposefully avoiding the other women of that community because as we will soon find out, she has been married to five of the men in this small community and she's now living with a sixth. She undoubtedly was a pariah and an outcast with the other women in this small town. Like Hester in Nathaniel Hawthorne's novel, this woman wears the scarlet letter. Now, in the interest of time, let me just read the first part of Jesus' discussion with this woman. Look in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a well of water, literally leaping up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. Now you understand, of course, that this is an amazing interchange of our Lord as he shares the truth of himself and the gospel with her. Jesus is here offering this woman the living water of eternal life. That living water that is connected to the work of the Spirit of God. But she doesn't get it. Either she's incredibly dense or she purposefully is avoiding the spiritual point Jesus is making. As you look through what we've just examined already of this chapter, there are many practical lessons in these verses. I don't have time to make them for you except for one. This has nothing to do with the theme of my message this morning. I'm just throwing it in for free. 
One thing stood out to me this week as I studied this passage. I could not help but being struck by Jesus' sincere love of people. Here was the worst of people, and yet he strikes up a conversation with her, and his intent was not merely to get a drink of water, but to reach her soul. He loved her. This is to be true of all of us as well. You know, my family and I are reading together a book called Trials and Triumphs. It's filled with brief stories from church history of famous Christians and their stand for Christ. This week, we read the story of Ambrose. Maybe you've heard of him. Ambrose served as the Bishop of Milan in the 300s AD. Ambrose was a remarkable man for many different reasons. It was under his ministry that the church father, Augustine, came to faith in Christ. Listen to what Augustine said about Ambrose and his love for him. Augustine said, that man, that is Ambrose, that man welcomed me as a father. I began to love him first, not as a teacher of the truth, but simply as a man who was kind and generous to me. You and I have that kind of genuine interest in people, the kind Ambrose had, the kind our Lord perfectly exemplifies here in John 4. Now we come to what is, most commentators agree, the heart of this passage and where I want us to learn about worship. Verse 20, the woman says, Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Those are rich and profound verses. Because in these verses, Jesus teaches us how to worship God. He shows us what a heart for worship looks like. True worship is obviously the theme of this paragraph. John uses the Greek word for worship some 11 times in his gospel. Nine of those 11 occurrences are in those verses I just read to you. In this brief section, our Lord opens up the heart of worship. In fact, we could put it this way. Jesus here identifies for us four inviolable laws of worship. Four inviolable laws of true worship. Inviolable law of worship number one. True worship is not external, but must rise from the heart. True worship is not external, but must rise from the heart. We see this in verses 20 and 21. Notice in verse 20, the woman says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place 
where men ought to worship. Now, this woman makes a statement, but it's really a question. You need to learn this, men. This happens sometimes. This is really a question, and her question here may have been sincerely motivated. Remember, back in verse 19, she's just concluded that Jesus is a prophet, and so it would be perfectly natural for her to ask this question because this question went to the heart of what had divided the Jews and Samaritans for literally hundreds of years. And so here's a prophet, here's this compelling question that has been on my heart for years, I'm going to ask it of this man. That's possible. More likely, however, she was just very uncomfortable with the personal direction the conversation had taken just a moment before, and this is a way to send it in a different direction altogether. Notice verse 16. You remember, after she misses the point and asks out of her own convenience to have the water Jesus offering, Jesus says, fine, I'll give you that water, but first go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Now, that was technically true, as we'll see in a moment, but it was really her dodge. It was her way to end that part of the conversation quickly and move on. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Now remember, as part of the incarnation, Jesus had surrendered what theologians call the independent exercise of his divine attributes. Jesus didn't walk around with omniscience all the time, knowing everything. He lived like you and I live. But here, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, Jesus uses his omniscience, and he drags out this woman's dirty little secret. She had had five husbands. Now, the clear implication here is either that she had divorced some or all of them, or perhaps her own promiscuity, her own loose living, her own unfaithfulness had caused her husbands to divorce her. Regardless, now she's living and sleeping with a man who is not her husband. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus had and still has the unique ability to expose the sin that stands between us and God? That's what he does with this woman. So, how did the woman respond to that? Well, she did what many of those we try to share the gospel with do. She threw up a distraction. Some biblical or theological issue that makes the whole discussion seem much less personal. Oh, okay, well, that's interesting. Well, tell me, where do you think Cain got his wife? That's the kind of question she's posing, I think. Verse 20, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, this argument stems from the Old Testament. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Here was the crux of the problem. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, God had said this through Moses. Verse 5, You shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, your freewill offerings, the firstborn of your herd and your flock. There also shall you and your households eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in all your undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. God says, listen, I'm going to identify a place, and you are not free to offer all the sacrifices I've told you to offer just anywhere you want. You have to come to worship where I tell you. Now, later, there, by the way, there's no hint in 
Deuteronomy or anywhere else in the books of Moses of where that place is going to be. Later, the scripture identifies that one place as Jerusalem. In 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 6, God says, using the same language as, as Deuteronomy 12, 5, God says, I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there. Now, there's a problem. Remember that the Samaritans didn't accept anything but the Pentateuch, the first five books. And in the first five books, there's no mention of the place where God wants them to worship, just that he wants them to worship in a certain place. So if you examine only those first five books, the most important mountain that lies within the borders of Israel in those first five books is Mount Gerizim. So that's where the Samaritans built a temple and that's where they worshiped. Even after the Jews destroyed that temple in 128 BC, the Samaritans continued to worship there and offer their sacrifices there. The Jews, on the other hand, believed in the rest of the Old Testament. And when they looked at the rest of the Old Testament, the place that God wanted them to go was clear. It was Jerusalem. So that was the crux of the debate. And that issue had divided these people for more than 400 years. So her question here is really about where to worship. That's obvious. But Jesus knows this woman, and he knows that her real problem is that she has misunderstood worship altogether. So look at Jesus' response, verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. Now, don't stumble over the word woman. That sounds kind of cold to us, but it's a word in the original language that we much like our word for ma'am or madam. He says, woman, believe me or listen to me. I'm telling you the truth. And then in essence, Jesus tells her that the place doesn't matter. Jesus wants her to know that true worship is not external, but must rise from the heart. And folks, this wasn't, in one sense, this wasn't new. This has always been true. This has always been a law of true worship. Turn back with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Here you'll see David after his sin with Bathsheba confessing that sin to God. And in verse 16 he says, You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. Stop there. Now is David, is David saying to God, I know you don't really want me to sacrifice like you've commanded me to do. Not at all. David was simply saying that that act of sacrifice was in and of itself not enough. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David was saying, listen, I can come to the right place, I can offer the right sacrifices, but if my heart isn't genuinely repentant, if it's not contrite, then it doesn't matter to you. You don't want the external. You want the heart. We see this again in Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah chapter 66, the very last chapter of Isaiah's prophecy. He begins in verse 1 saying, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? I don't need your temple, he says. For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, 
to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word, that is, who fears me enough to listen when I speak and to do it. Then notice what he says in verse 3. It's really shocking. God says, but he who kills an ox, that is, you come with your ox to give a sacrifice to me, it's like one who slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering to me is like one who offers pig's blood. He who burns incense is like the one who blesses an idol. What is God saying here? He's saying, listen, if you come to me with the sacrifices I've demanded of you, with the sacrifice of an ox, of a lamb, a grain offering, or you come burning incense, but your heart isn't engaged, you are not contrite of spirit, humble in heart, trembling at my word, then it's just to me like you brought a human sacrifice, which of course is detestable to God. Or it's like you brought a dog for sacrifice. Or you brought pig's blood, which was of course an unclean animal. Or it's like in burning incense, you're blessing an idol. He says you might as well be a pagan offering those kinds of sacrifices as to come to offer sacrifice to me that doesn't spring from the right heart. This is throughout the prophets, but turn over to Amos, the prophet Amos, chapter 5. In verse 21, he says to the people of Israel, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Now remember, these were ones God had demanded. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I won't accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God is saying through the prophet Amos, listen, don't come to me with the right sacrifices and the right festivals in the right place and think that that makes your worship acceptable to me if your heart isn't right, if you don't have a righteous heart that flows out in right living. I'm not interested, God says. The prophet Micah makes the same point in Micah, Micah chapter 6, verse 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves, Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? He's using hyperbole to say, listen, it doesn't matter how much of this stuff I do. Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts? May I even go beyond what God has commanded? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? The bottom line is, if your heart isn't right, then God doesn't want thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil or anything else you might give him. He's uninterested. Now, obviously, you can see from this text that this law of worship has always been true. And yet, Jesus, back in John chapter 4, turn there back with me again. In John chapter 4, Jesus is saying that there's a change also happening. Notice what he says. John chapter 4, verse 21. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming. Now, that's a favorite expression of our Lord to refer to his passion, to his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That time when God himself would tear the curtain into the Holy of Holies and invite everyone in who has faith in his son. He says, an hour is coming 
When you, and you here in the Greek text is plural. In English, you is understood by the context to be singular or plural, but in Greek, it's obviously singular or plural, and here it's plural. He's saying you, that is you Samaritans, will worship neither here nor there. You know what Jesus was telling the Samaritan woman and all of us? Was that at his death, place would no longer matter. And certainly, of course, God punctuated that some 40 years later after the death of Christ when the Romans destroyed permanently the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. But what I want you to see is this. Notice how Jesus is correcting this woman's skewed perspective about what it meant to worship. She was all tied up in place and things and ceremonies. To her, if you were in the right place, and if you were performing the right ceremonies, then you were truly worshiping. So that was the key question is, where do I go? Once I've got that question settled, I'm worshiping. Jesus wants her to understand that worship doesn't automatically happen just because of where you are and what you're doing. True worship is not a question of where you are, but where's your heart? It's not a question of what you're doing, but what's going on in your heart? The fact that you came this morning is a good thing. That in and of itself is an act of obedience to God. You've gathered for the corporate worship as Scripture demands. But the fact that you came this morning does not for a moment mean that you have truly worshipped God any more than attending a football game will make you an athlete. No more than attending a concert will make you a musician. The fact that in your private life this week you set aside time to read the Bible and to pray does not mean that you truly worshipped God. Just because you sang with us this morning doesn't mean you worshipped Worship doesn't happen simply because all the externals are right. The right place, the right activities, the right words. Listen, get this. Jesus says worship begins in the heart and rises out of the heart and expresses itself in all of the activities. It begins with a conscious choice, a conscious desire and a deliberate choice to worship, to exalt God for who he is. Let me ask you, why are you really here this morning? Did you, this morning, at some point before we gathered together or as we gathered together, did you make a conscious decision from the bottom of your heart that you were here to exalt and lift up the name of God? If not, you didn't worship. Worship doesn't happen by osmosis. It begins with a deliberate choice and then it continues moment by moment as you continue to worship because we're humans our mind can drift immediately and so we have to always be coming back with a choice to worship God the first law of worship is this and do not miss it true worship is not external but must rise from the heart worship is not about where you are it's not about what you're doing in and of itself. You can be in the right place and doing the right things and not be worshiping. Understand that Jesus here in this text tells this woman and he tells you and me that if we want to worship, we've got to get out of our minds that being somewhere at the right time or performing the right activities means in and of itself that we're worshiping. That means nothing to God as we saw from all those Old Testament passages. What matters to God is what's going on in your heart. Even as you listen to me right now, as you listen to me preach, let me ask you a question. 
Is it a deliberate choice to make this an act of worship where you are listening, as it were, to the voice of God to you? If not, it's not worship. It may be instruction, it may be teaching, or it may be something you're ready to be done with, but it's not worship. Worship only comes when the heart says, I'm here to exalt God. That is my chief concern. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part four of The Heart of Worship. Tom will continue with part five on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.